HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The Big Food Question is partnering with TD Bank on five special episodes about the resilience of small businesses in the face of a constantly shifting pandemic landscape. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief with me, your host, Zara Tangora. And me, Bobby Comforto, your mom. Hi, Mama. How's it going? It's going pretty good. Glad to be doing this recording today. I know. Really wonderful. Man, I mean, you know, I feel like we're always saying the same thing. Oh, like, oh my God, this week's episode is so great. And you know why? Because all our guests are incredibly beautiful, wonderful, generous people. And so each episode is so great. And this, um, this episode is exactly the same. So great. And, but also so different because everybody is so unique and their stories are unique, but we are, had the absolute distinct, incredible pleasure of speaking with Sheila D today. And Sheila was just so, she's just really warm and she really is just so tender and kind and benevolent. And it was really just such a pleasure to speak with her. And telling a story that was very, very painful. And, um, she just, I think she really will help other people who have gone through something like this a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I say this all the time and it's really true. Like it's, it's a brave thing to, um, to touch a fire, to get so close to a fire, you know, something that's so hot Mm -hmm. and our guests are really brave for doing that. And this was really a big thing for Sheila. as She had mentioned that this wasn't something that she had necessarily fully, you know, processed yet. And she's in the middle of processing and that's why our show is called processing because we're all processing. (laughs) Um, but yeah, it was really amazing to speak with Sheila and, yeah, she's also an incredibly incredible musician, and we gave a shout out at the end of the episode where to find uh, her music, and we're going to include it in the show notes for this episode as well. And yeah, it was just it was great, it was wonderful. And keep listening, and if if anyone feels an interest um, to be part of our show or know know anybody that would like to, we we love to meet new people to tell their stories. We love to share stories. So um, either write to us or Zara tell. Tell them how they do that. Oh, again. it's uh, our our number is one nine hundred. I'm just kidding. Uh, you can write to us at processing at heritageradionetwork.org. And uh, we're at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. And also I will ask uh, on behalf of Bobby and I, if you feel compelled, if you like the show, please give us a rating, preferably a five-star one, but really just go with your heart. Mm-hmm. Um on iTunes and subscribe to the show, tell a friend, you know, we want to grow the show because we feel like there's, um, 
so much to be learned from our guests and their experiences and that can help other people. So if you, you know, write a review and, and rate the show and subscribe, it just really helps the show become more visible, which is really cool. Just as a little bit of a preamble to the episode, I also just want to mention that this episode deals heavily with um, talking about uh, opioid addiction. And as we all know, that's, um, you know, it's a crisis that's currently going on in this country. And if anybody is struggling with addiction or knows someone is struggling with addiction, um, we really urge you to talk to a counselor, a therapist, a mental health counselor, a drug counselor um, to seek, you know, treatment and help. Um, Al-Anon was mentioned in the episode. That's a really useful resource. Um, NAAA, there's all kinds of different resources out there and everything, you know, everyone's different and something works different for everyone, but just wanted to kind of put that out there ahead of the episode. Absolutely. Without further ado, we give you Sheila D. Thank you so much, Sheila. Well, we are here today with the absolutely lovely and wonderful Sheila D. Sheila is joining us today from uh, Stone Ridge in the Hudson Valley. And um, Sheila, while you work in education, I came to know you through seeing you in an amazing concert that you did uh, upstate um, with your band, Sheila D and the Dazzlers. And you have such a not only beautiful voice, but an incredibly magnetic presence. And you're just like this, this like shining, twinkling person. And I was immediately like, who is she? And then we got to talk to each other the next day at a mutual friend's barbecue. And one thing led to another. And um, we're just so happy to have you here with us today. Well, that was a really incredible experience because I was up on stage performing when you joined the concert with our friend. And I, you know, I'm just out there just, you know, doing my thing, singing, um, I write all the music and I just really channel like I hadn't performed in 16 or 18 months because of the pandemic. So that was my first live show. And it was like, it wasn't just, Oh, I'm singing my music. It was, I have returned to all that is joyous in my whole being. And when I ran into you the next day, you know, we were sitting by each other, we were chatting, we're eating food And I had no idea that you had seen me at that show. I didn't realize because I didn't know you before. Um, And it was just so crazy that I started opening up to you and another friend. People, I was at a barbecue where I didn't really know most of the people. Mm. But I started opening up to you about my sister and just some of my feelings about, you know, what was going on in my life. And for you to just say, well, I, I work on a grief podcast. I just like my mind was blown <laughs> because I had been basically praying for a way to break through into feeling what mm. I needed to feel. Um, and, and so that synchronicity of meeting you in that exact moment when I had been kind of hoping for a way, you know, my, my yeah. bookshelf is covered with grief books. My iPod is stacked full with grief podcasts and I've never listened to a single one or opened a single book. You know, it's been one of those things where I just felt very stunted and trapped and scared and you were just so beautiful and welcoming. I mean, and you were just a person like you weren't like, (laughs) 
I'm a grief podcast right. host. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I think if I may, like, I don't know if this is how you felt, but I think that like, um, as someone who's also had a grief experience and also I've had like a crazy near death experience, a very bad accident. And I feel sometimes when I share my story with people, I'm expecting a certain reaction, which is, oh my God, that's so crazy. Like, wow. And like, and not because people are bad or insensitive, just because it's like, not always relatable. And even when it is, sometimes people really don't want to talk about it. And so like, I could tell that when we linked up that there was something that just felt good for you and me too, about being able to be like, whoa, like this conversation is actually going to probably go a little bit deeper than I expected. And like, you know, that's really what we want to do with the podcast in general, because you know, we, we say this a lot, but like, man, having, being in a grief experience is so lonely sometimes. And it makes you feel like a fucking alien or something. And you're not an alien. We're all, if you're an alien, we're all aliens, right? Because everybody deals with this. So it was lovely to meet you. And I immediately felt drawn to you and, and your story. And I knew that Bobby would too. I was talking to Bobby about you before the show and just saying what a lovely and really heartfelt person you are. And uh, yeah, it's just great to have you be with us. Um, So you grew up, Sheila, in Ithaca, right? And what was, can you just tell us a little bit of like, what was, what was the growing up experience like? What was your home life like? Um, yes. So, um, Ithaca was our home because my dad had gone to college there for one semester before he had kids. So my parents were high school sweethearts and they had kids really young. So my dad never graduated from Cornell, but he got there on a scholarship and went for one semester and just kind of fell in love with Ithaca. So um, when we were little, my parents divorced and split up and my dad went to Ithaca to become a tofu maker. So he, yeah, so he made (laughs) tofu and was a very bohemian, hippie, down to earth, like working class guy, um, always on the side of like the working man and the people and, you know, talked with disdain about like yuppies and the intellectual elite of Ithaca, but really appreciated it because it was a very cultural city. It was a place where there was always music. And, um, my dad has a sailboat and loves to sail on the lake, but he's like one of those like scruffy characters with a sailboat. He's not like a yacht guy. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. That's cool. So, um, So my dad was a musician. My mom's a musician as well. And we grew up singing in our family. So Mm -hmm. I grew up singing all my dad's music um, and also everything from like Super Tramp to um, to Tracy Chapman. And we just had a really, really beautiful, vibrant family. But it was also tinged with like, you know, my dad had a second wife and I have sisters that are 10 years younger than us. So Mm. it was like a blended family and there wasn't always enough room for everybody. And it was moving back and forth between my mom's house and my dad's house. So even though I grew up in Ithaca, it was like, I was in Ithaca, I was in Corning, I was in Hornell, I was back in Ithaca. There was a lot of transition and, um, you know, my sister and I were the constant in our family. Like we were always together. Um, So from the time I was four and the time she was two, our parents were separated. So it was like, we would go to my dad's, we would go to my mom's. Mm -hmm. And as we got older, it started getting very intense because sometimes we would get split up and I would live with my dad and she Mm. would be at my mom's. Or one year I went and I lived with my aunt so that my 
siblings could live with my dad. It was like this very, Mm. you know, now that I have been grieving and in therapy since I started grieving, I've seen a lot more of just how that sense of over-responsibility started so young of like, oh, I'm 10. I'll go live at my aunt's house so that my brother and sister can live at my dad's. Because there just wasn't room for all five kids in like a three-bedroom apartment. Yeah, that's a lot. And you could feel yourself considering others' feelings at an early age. Oh, from this, from instantly, you know, just That's a heavy bag to carry, you know what I mean? It really is. What's so interesting is I didn't realize that until now. Yeah. You know, I didn't realize that until the the guilt over my sister's passing was literally strangling me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That I was carrying that bag. Yeah. Because for me, it was like, okay, no big. I love my aunt. You know, right. I'm so, like right. you said, I'm so light and bright and perky and yeah. passionate and energetic. Your disposition, that, your natural disposition. Yes. Yeah. I have this very like optimistic, deeply, truthfully optimistic personality. Mm-hmm. So I truly believe that like anything's possible. You can seize the day, you know, Yeah. I, I graduated high school with um, like a more than perfect GPA and I got a scholarship to college because I was just like, let's go to college on a full scholarship. <laughs> right. Anything's possible, yeah. you know, like. <laughs> it sounds like you're adaptable. Yeah. It does sound like you're adaptable. Yeah. I guess I was going to just say, if I may, that I was thinking about this concept earlier because of a conflict that I'm having in my own personal life. And I was thinking about the ways that life um, disappoints you or hurts you. And it has this opportunity to either harden us or soften us. And sometimes it can harden us and then it softens us or opposite. But like, it does find a way to like, um, kind of do one of those two things. And it like, a lot of times it's like the necessity, like, well, things are out of control. So I'm going to like go in a shell and be like the world fucking sucks. Or it's like, things are out of control and I'm going to just be this positive person because I have to find a way to like get through an uncomfortable situation. And like the coping mechanism isn't always horrible, right? So your coping mechanism of becoming this like light person who's like trying to make the best of things. Plus people are born under whatever stars, right? So some people just have a pinch of this or a pinch of that. So that's not like negative towards the world, but it can end up then someday being like, wow, I've just tried to process everything by thinking it's all okay. And like, what a, what a maybe disservice have I done to myself? I don't know. Well, I call that a price to pay for everything. Right. <laughs> so there's obviously a real strong upside to your perspective. And like Zara said, chances are you have the genes for it and you adapted to your situation, that combination of both. And it has, sometimes it has its downside because if we're trying to find the best in things and really being fitting in, we sometimes neglect ourselves and we neglect to look at our own needs. You know, I think that's part of it. But Zara, going back to what you said, there's a concept that there's a choice when we have a difficulty. You know, I don't know if it feels so much of a choice, but I think if you want to learn from an experience, that's maybe the choice. And if we try to learn from a bad experience, that's when we see the the more optimistic side from it, the more positive side. So instead of feeling like a victim of it, you know. Totally. So Sheila, you, you know, mentioned a couple of times talking about your sister, Stephanie, and that you guys were obviously very close growing up through this experience. And, you know, I know from what you've told me personally and then told Bobby and I in kind of your pre-interview, 
um, that you guys really remained extremely close um, until, you know, as I hope you can share with us and our listeners, her, her passing in 2017. Um, can you, would you mind telling us just a little bit about your guys' relationship, if that feels okay? Yeah. You know, the, the turtle who puts her head in and says, this world sucks. I'm pissed. That was my sister. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, make the best of it. Rise up. Don't let them get you down. You know, Stephanie was a fighter. She was just passionate and, and, and really, um, you know, she just wasn't going to take shit from anybody, you know? So, you know, she joined the, the foot, the football cheerleaders, um, out in Cape Cod. She lived with my aunt too for a year. And, you know, when I lived there, I was young and innocent sixth grader. And I just like did the school play and just, you know, had an easy life. And she lived there when she was 13 and 14, a freshman in high school. And she, um, you know, joined the football team cheerleaders Yeah, and the seniors didn't like that a freshman was on the foot, you know, the varsity cheerleading squad. So she immediately like had like teen girls out to get her. So she like punched them in the face and got suspended. You know what I mean? Like she was not, not going to take shit from anybody. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, we're both Puerto Rican. My mom is Puerto Rican, but our dad is not. So Mm -hmm. if you look at me, you don't, I don't scream Puerto Rican, but if you looked at her, it was like 100% clear that she was ethnic and would just like throw down anytime. And I'm not trying to say that as like a stereotype, right? but there's a way that you can embody a persona if you want to, like Mm -hmm. the feisty, fiery Latina. And she like soaked that up and embodied it. She wore hoops. She did makeup. I mean, in many ways, even though we were two years apart and I'm older, she developed physically before I did. And just mm-hmm. like, you know, she just was older in so many ways in, in that, like, she, I was always afraid of confrontation. You know, I hated when anyone was mad at me and she like soaked it up and loved it. So when we were teenagers, we really fought a lot. Cause we were like, I was the goody two shoes. She was the, you know, tough, rough and tumble. Um, <laughs> And that all shifted when she was 16 and she um, was pregnant. So she mm-hmm. got pregnant, you know, from her 20-year-old boyfriend. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it was just like, oh, Stephanie, what have you did done? She, you did know. she have the baby? She did. She, she did. did. Mm-hmm. So, so she had her daughter, um, her daughter, and that changed our whole relationship because instantly I just felt like I want to be there for her. I want to be there for the baby. Mm-hmm. Um, we had younger sisters who at that time – were like seven and four. Okay. So we had raised, we had been raised with these babies. We were so comfortable around babies, like big families mm-hmm. with babies. You just love right. babies and they're just so <laughs> totally. amazing. And yeah. so luckily, you know, that baby just called me in. And so our relationship shifted and we became super tight. And um, she actually came and lived with me in my dorm my mm. senior year of college. Oh my God. The woman who was the security guard in my dorm in, in New York city, I went to Columbia. She was a single mom. And sometimes she would have to bring her son to like sit on a chair while she did her security guarding. So she and my sister kind of bonded and she would just let her in without all the rigmarole Aww. of like visitor precautions and yeah. signing in. And, 
I mean, every once in a while I would sign her in as a visitor and get her a pass. Right. But she lived with us from February of, of my senior year of college until I graduated in May. Wow. And with her a child two-year-old. Is, yes. How, oh is it a girl gosh. or a boy? Um, Mina. Um, she's a little, she's now 21, but oh at the time goodness. she was two. Yeah. Wow. So she was two years old and she, they were living in my dorm. And to me, this was just like, yeah, party. Like, yeah. you know, it was totally. just funny. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to see my college roommates um, th- tomorrow, actually, we're having a reunion. And it's just like, hey, remember when you let my sister and the two-year-old <laughs> live with us? Party. You know? <laughs> no, it's a sweet it's a sweet memory. And it speaks a lot to, you know, giving some backstory to the closeness that you guys had in your relationship, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, you... I don't know. I, it's just an interesting thing because I, I was raised as an only child. I learned later in life that I had a, a half-brother. But basically, I'm an only child. And it's just such a different kind of experience. But like, you know, you learn a lot at an early age, I guess, how to, it seems like you've done a lot of learning about how to cohabitate and care and think about other people, whether it be your sister, your niece, the rest of your family, you've done a lot of like, you know, output and caring for other people. And that's a, you know, it's, it's a really incredible quality to have and an incredible lesson to learn young, you know, at a young age. I mean, I just took it all totally in stride. Like I, I graduated from college and I got a job, you know, in New York City and my sister was working at H&M and she would have to she would have to drop her daughter off at our friend's house to babysit her while she struggled and worked all these long hours to bring home like two hundred and eighty five dollars. It was just some kind of ridiculous thing. And I noticed that, like, I could pay the rent so why doesn't she just go to college and put her daughter in the free preschool at the college? So she went to BMCC in Manhattan and got her associate's degree. And, you know, and I just like worked and paid the bills and we all lived together. So it was very much like a family dynamic where I was like the dad working <laughs> and paying the yeah. bills. And she went to college and her daughter lived with us. So from the time um, Mina was two until she was five. We all lived mm-hmm. together in Brooklyn mm-hmm. and just had like a New York City life. Um, but, you know, my personal life was really suffering at that time. I wasn't I was just struggling a lot with, um, you know, feeling rejected, boy problems. Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't very satisfied with my career and I felt called to, like, try something different and move on with my life. Um, and so. I, um, I started, uh, dating someone from high school who lived in Los Angeles and I'm like, I'm going to go to LA. Um, and part of it was because, you know, I was working in film and television at the time and I just really wanted to try moving out to LA and seeing what I could do. You know, can I be a filmmaker? Can I be a director? You know, I can't do that here in the city. Because something about New York just felt so exhausting. Um, yeah, it can actually, it can definitely <laughs> be very exhausting. That is for sure. Can I ask I you a w- question? Was it hard yeah. to leave your sister? I mean, what oh was my that God. like for you? It was, it was very hard. If I had to kind of like put myself back there, the only reason I left is because her best friend had just graduated from college and was moving in. So I felt like Stephanie had graduated college her best friend had graduated college. I can move on. Right. Um, I can, but I remember, I'll never forget the conversation where I sat with her on the couch and I told her 
that I was going to leave and move to LA and just like her whole body just, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, like she had a job then waiting tables. She was paying, you know, her part of the rents. Her friend was moving in. She could pay the rent. I mean, I mean, this decision has really haunted me for a really long time um, because you can't, you can't make up this story. But what happened with Stephanie was that when I left, her best friend moved in and then she watched this documentary film called Union Square, okay. which is about heroin addicts who live in Union Square. Yeah. And she became fascinated with the people in the movie and went to Union Square and found one of them. Wow. And she brought him back to live in the house. And wow. she became his, like, caretaker, taking him to methadone clinics. Like, she just... Wow. And so it's bizarre that this yeah. was what happened. But I remember her calling me when I was in L.A. and just her talking about how mad she was, that her best friend didn't understand. She's trying to help someone. He's a person too. She had this huge empathy for him and his struggle. And like, he wanted to get clean. He was in the methadone clinic. It was all very complicated. And from Los Angeles, what could I do? I was just being supportive. I mean, I was just taking the call and being like, oh yeah, totally Steph. Yeah, I know. Wow. But her best friend obviously didn't feel comfortable living with a heroin addict. So she left. And from that time on, it was like the beginning of the end. Like I I just to my to this day, it's like phenomenally bizarre. It is. She called in the darkness in a way. Yes. She she called it in. But also from a place of of great compassion. You know, she really cared for him. Right. You know, I couldn't help but notice the dynamic of the setup where life was just easier for you, you know, not to say that it's easy for you ever, but you know, that it's easier for you compared to her and that for her, it was hard to harder to be her. And that dynamic creates like a survivor guilt feeling right from the start, even before she passed. I mean, you are not joking around. Like, yeah, the survivor guilt is like really, really intense with, with my sister because it's like always from the very beginning, I could survive and she couldn't. It's like, yeah. you know, she just was always jumping through hoops and, you know, and being a single mom was so hard. I yeah. mean, let's not, she would call me from LA and she would say, you know, she would say it was so much easier when you were here. I didn't realize how much you helped me. Mm. I miss you. I wish you were here. And so you know, the whole entire time I lived in Los Angeles, I felt guilty that I was far away from her. And that you were so, following your dream. That's all you were doing was following your own life, your own dream. I know. I know. And, you know, yeah. and I met my husband in Los Angeles. Mm. We met there. Mm. Um, you know, I I found my own life there. I met yes. Jay. He's wonderful. He's in my band. You know, we, we're making a documentary film together. Like, he's my rock solid partner who's there for me. But I dragged him back east because I couldn't be that far away from my family. You know, it was like, we got to get back east. Um, So, you know, I I convinced her to move up to Ithaca. I was like, Uh go back to Ithaca. Dad's there. You know, our brother's there. And how old are you both about this time? 
Um, when I moved to Los Angeles, I was 24 and she was 22. And so, you know, 23, 24, 25, I'm like, yeah. get to Ithaca, twenties, yeah. you know, go where you have support, you know, don't raise your child alone in Brooklyn. Like, and you know, she, the city's a lot. She had kind of become involved in opioids as well. She must have been, right. but she was very she was just very secretive. You know, right. we were very secretive when we lived with each other. It was almost like we only ever showed each other the positive things. Huh. Like we would cook dinner together and hang out and laugh. And, you know, <laughs> we would, we spent a lot of time like, um, you know, like smoking pot and laughing and joking yeah. around and just, Perfect. you know, eating popcorn. Cause she had a child. So we were never going anywhere. Right. We were creating all the energy and fun right there at our apartment. Right. Um, and friends would come over and it was, it was a really, really great time when we lived together. But personally, in my soul, in my heart, I was totally lonely. I was really, right. you know, I just, the, the love that you get from your sister and her daughter is not the same as you get from like a partner in your life who you know, I wanted a man to be my partner and I yeah. didn't, you know what I mean? Like I'm I young. Think the and equal, I think the equal part of it, it's almost as if Jay became an equal partner in your life and your sister, in some ways you always felt like the caretaker. And there, that I think the thing that was unspoken that you're speaking of is that imbalance between you. It just was what it was. I mean, nobody did this on purpose. It's just, she had a different nature and you had a different nature. And I'm sure that was very difficult for both of you. Well, what was so hard is I would do these things like I would do workshops and I would have these deep talks with my friends and I would kind of glean these insights in life and I would share them with her and she would just shut it down so fast. She's like, yeah, that works for you. Yeah. You're happy. Yeah, you, you, know? grow, you were growing and she was so stuck. It was so that, hard. That is hard. Painful. That oh. is a hard, hard, hard dynamic. And I, yeah. well, I don't have that experience with a sibling. I've definitely had that experience in relationships before. And when you are on one path, when you want to grow and be open and like, and do the work and someone else, I won't say doesn't want to, but just can't, you know what I mean? Because I think one thing that we neglect to talk about sometimes is that being in a headspace where we want to do the work of life and have the the capacity to is a privilege in a way, you know what I mean? Mm. And who's to say what, again, like what pinch of what gives certain people, you know, it's, there's nature and there's nurture to it, you know, but having that open heart and open mind and the desire to like be vulnerable because growth and self-exploration is extreme vulnerability, right? And for whatever set of reasons, again, nature and nurture, some of us do not have that. And when you're in an intimate relationship with somebody who doesn't share that desire or capacity, it's it becomes challenging and you feel guilty about being it and you feel resentful at them for not and vice versa. And it is a very difficult dynamic. I've found if myself if in I that could, If I could add times. something, the person who doesn't share the vulnerability is feels vulnerable they're just more right. scared oh right. yeah she they're had just more thick, scared they have more fear yeah. yeah she had that really thick exterior but like yeah. would totally be crying on the inside you know right. I that's, mean that's part of the hard thing is that she was so vulnerable she was probably yeah. so so vulnerable like too too vulnerable right. yes. Yes. yes yeah and, oh. 
so, you know, what a story. Living, so what happened then? Well, living in Los Angeles, I was out there for five years total. And during that time, you know, she was living with her daughter up in Ithaca. She had different jobs in restaurants, different boyfriends, but the whole thing was kind of, it was always a little bit like unclear. I would say, you know, it was, it wasn't until 2010, which was, um, five years later that I, that she admitted to me, I'm using heroin, please Mm. help me. I have a problem. So I really don't know. I mean, I don't know exactly what happened. I just know that there was a lot of really strange dynamics in her life. I mean, she ended up having, she was in and out of, um, you know, recovery rooms, but, you know, always just with a chip on her shoulder, you know, she would, she was in, I can't even remember the, the, I can't remember the first time she went to a rehab, but I, but I think it was before it's, it's all blending together. It's so hard, but you know, it was clear that there was something strange going on. Like I would come home and visit and I would be so excited to see her and she would get a phone call and then just disappear. Like right. she would just get up and leave and never come back. And you because just the like, procuring of the drugs yes. becomes the primary thing. The thing with addiction is that that becomes the most important yes. thing in your whole life. Whatever the substance is, whatever the activity is, it, it takes the place of everything else. It trumps everything. Yeah. yeah. So that yeah. was brutal. Um, yeah. It was really brutal to be her sister and to feel this intense connection and like, I'm out there feeling guilty, feeling like I've abandoned her. So I, I had to, once I moved back and I was more available to be close to her and it was not possible to be close, that was really, really hard because right. I always thought it was the physical distance between us that was making it that we weren't close. You know, yeah. I'm not a phone person. You know, she came to visit me once or twice, but you know, we did some amazing things together. We produced an um, independent film called Vacation Bible Lemonade, where her wow. daughter plays the main character. And my sister was like the producer. She helped me like secure all these locations. And wow, we did this so out cool. in Los Angeles in 2009. So her daughter was seven. And, you know, so she was very, you know, she hit it really well. I think that that's what I want to say. Like, she was so, so you know, engaged in passions. She taught herself guitar. You know, she was nothing like my picture of what an addict would be. I thought she was just grumpy, moody, you know, and just kind of cruel. Like she was just like, whatever. I don't, you know, I got somewhere to go and leave. It wasn't like, I didn't know where she was going. I really didn't. And so when I moved back and I wanted to be close to her and I wanted to spend more time with her, you know, it just got to be clear that something was up. And finally, in 2010, um, she admitted to me, I, you know, I have a problem. I'm, I'm using heroin. I, I'm caught up with the, um, the dealers, you know, I'm scared. Help. And yeah. it was like a moment of like mobilization of like, oh, shit, like this is worse than I thought. Like I knew she was drinking kind of too much and I didn't like going out with her when she was drinking because she would get a bit like over the top. But I had no idea that it had gone that far. I really didn't because when right. she talked about her boyfriend who was the 
addict she had rescued from Union Square. Hmm. She talked about getting him to the methadone clinic and right. you know, she spun it all in this like I'm saving him way. Right. Not in the he's dragging me down into the darkness way. Right. You know, if I um, can't add one thing here, you know, the thing about heroin and other opi- opioids is that it 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 lifts the endorphins. It's this, this high release of endorphins. So you can really see um, such a different personality, but then it goes really, really low. So yeah. you can see the up and down, the severe up and down. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really rough. Sheila, yeah. so what, another thing that you mentioned is, you know, even over the years when your sister was struggling with this, when we were kind of talking about the food element of your relationship and some of your memories, you had mentioned a couple of things, one of which is that um, you would always spend Thanksgiving at your sister's house and, um, you know, that's a sweet memory. And there's also, you know, something about Thanksgiving, even for Bobby and I, like in times in our relationship in my adolescence, like we would not get along, you know, there's years we spent like not really being close, Except for but, Thanksgiving. but always Thanksgiving, you know, yeah. and there's some kind of interesting thing in some families about the pull yeah. of that holiday or holidays in general. And I don't know, I just, I was intrigued by it. And I, I thought maybe you could expand on what some of those food memories and holidays were like. Yeah. For you guys. The, the first Thanksgiving that I really remember was one year, my mom and I um, went together to uh, Puerto Rico. And um, this was when I was 22. And I was still living in Brooklyn with my sister. And the flights were just cheaper if you came home on Thanksgiving. So we flew home on Thanksgiving Day and we showed up in Brooklyn and Stephanie had cooked an entire Thanksgiving, like everything. She had cooked a turkey. She had cooked cornbread stuffing. She had cooked regular stuffing. She had done mashed potatoes. She made homemade cranberry sauce. And so Mm -hmm. she just made everything. You know, she loved cooking and she loved hosting and she totally had that kind of Latina maternal, you know, bring yeah. the people all the food mentality. Yeah. So that really kicked it off. I mean, that was the first um, Thanksgiving where it felt like this is the start of a tradition. And then um, every year I would always come home for Thanksgiving for um, when I lived in Los Angeles. I would often come home for Thanksgiving and stay through Christmas. So okay. even though I lived in LA, I would come home for like two months at a time to just yeah. be with my family. A lot of times I would be crashing on her couch during that time. Um, And, you know, she just always wanted to be in charge. You know, she liked control. She liked things her way. She was very, you know, you know, she didn't like how I made the cranberry sauce because (laughs) I didn't like to strain it through the like we liked making cranberry sauce from scratch. But if you want it to be jellied, you have to squeeze it through a strainer for like. 45 minutes to get all the goo out the other side. So to me, that's just madness. You know, it doesn't taste that much better. If you want jellied cranberry sauce, just open a can. Totally. You know, I'm perfectly fine with it being chunky and having, having to, you know, having little oranges in it or whatever. Yeah. But she was just like dead set on this cranberry sauce. So it became this family thing of like, my dad would be yelling, what are you doing? You're a lunatic as she's like (laughs) squeezing it. She's like, everyone leave me alone. I'm going to do it how I want it. I want the cranberry sauce this way. Um, so every year we would have it at her house. I mean, it was just this fun party. Um, my younger sisters would always get dropped off. They would have the morning Thanksgiving with their mom's side of the family because my dad and his second wife also split up. So, 
Right. There was always all these different dynamics of who's going to be where on which day. We would often celebrate holidays the day after because it was just like, you know, no big. But Thanksgiving was always at Stephanie's house. It was always this fabulous occasion. We we would do this thing where we would all go raid her closet because she was the stylish one. She's the one who did makeup. She's the one who had all the fashionista clothes. So me and my sisters would go up and we'd all put on something of hers and just be (laughs) super stylish. That is so sweet. Yeah. Um, And so year after year after year, it was Stephanie's house, Stephanie's house. We have all these pictures through the year of like the different family configurations that would come. Um, The only year I ever missed it was because my husband and I um, had like a a delayed honeymoon Uh where we went to um, Europe for the first time ever. And we were in Venice on Thanksgiving Uh and we were we were traveling in Europe. And, you know, there's a picture of a Thanksgiving. We weren't at it, but it was like, we're in Europe, but (laughs) you guys are awesome. Yeah. So you moved back, though. You ended up moving I back did. to Ithaca. Yeah. And Not how did Ithaca. that change? I moved to the, the Hudson Valley where I oh, live right. oh, gotcha. now. Mm. So you but within right. driving distance. Yeah, you know, like in like the same closer. area. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I just kind of want to, like, also bring us up to the event of Stephanie's passing. Um, yes. In 2017. So, could would you know, if it feels okay for you, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, the Thanksgiving bridge is that that's the last time I ever saw her was on the Thanksgiving in 2016. Um, so we had our family Thanksgiving and um, I saw her the next day on on uh, on Black Friday and she really was there for me in a way that I hadn't experienced in a long time. Um, and, you know, she just seemed to be doing really well. I mean, she really, you know, she had had the same job for three years. We all thought she was sober. And I know so many times people who get sober actually end up dying when they relapse because their bodies, you know, you're like, I don't know. I'm conjecturing right now. I think you're right. I've heard it many times. But I've heard that that's kind of what is happening. And, um, you know, there are people who are close to her who probably know the truth better than me because I don't know anything, you know. I I had to create boundaries for myself to be Mm -hmm. in her life, which is Mm -hmm. where I couldn't be her secret keeper. I couldn't be the person who knew all the ins and outs of her darkness and then kept it and hid it. So she didn't really talk to me about what was happening. It was just basically when I saw her, I would get a sense or, um, so, you know, that was Thanksgiving in November. And then, I reached out to her a few times. Um, I, I recorded my album um, that January and I really, really missed her and I wanted to share it with her. And then I went to the Women's March on Washington and I hmm. produced this music video where I was marching in Washington. And it was like this incredible video. And my sister and I were always really close on like political activism and like, you know, down with the white power type of stuff. And yeah. And um, I knew she would love it. And as I'm editing this music video in February, I was just like, oh, my God, Stephanie would love this. So I was like calling her. I was reaching out. Um, And the last text message I got from her was, hey, you're going to be moving soon. I have to come help you pack up because, you know, you're too weak. You can't lift anything. Um, And March 5th, she she died of an overdose. And my dad called me and 
told me about it. So I hadn't Mm. seen her in months when she died and I hadn't talked to her in months. I hadn't, you know, I just have so much of this hole that I just never got to say goodbye. And I was listening to one of your earlier episodes, um, where someone was talking about being with his mom and, and being there and saying goodbye and having Mm -hmm. like three months together and just Mm -hmm. connecting and knowing and just all that. And I just started bawling when I listened to it because I had no idea she would be taken from us. No idea. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was a complete shock. And, you know, she passed on March 15, March 5th, 2017. My birthday is March 15th and Mm -hmm. her birthday is March 22nd. Mm -hmm. So our birthdays are a week apart. And we were always like, we would celebrate our birthdays together. We would. So it's just been brutal. I mean, it's just been like the guilt. I mean, I feel free from the guilt now. And I think when I met you, Zara, that was something I had talked to you about a little bit was just like, I'm finally free from the guilt, but it took me four years to feel free. And so I didn't feel any of the loss ever because when you feel guilt, it's so suffocating. It, it literally killed me. It made me, it made me so, I could not function at all. Like, I don't know how to explain it, but it's like, that sensation that I shouldn't have moved to LA. I should have never left her alone. She would have never watched that movie if I was there. Why did I let her take in that addict from the city? What, you know, every, every moment of that downward spiral that took 10 years, I felt like I should have saved her. I could have saved her. I should have saved her. I could have saved her. And this is all alongside going to Al-Anon recovery meetings and going to a therapist and learning about boundaries. And I mean, I am like actively working to save my sanity all along the way, but in your inner deepest core, I, all that was just up here in my head. It had nothing to do with my truth. The truth was that I felt like it was my fault. Right. Well, the thing is, right. The reality of guilt is that, there are all different parallel universes in which we take a step in the other direction. You know what I mean? We get on a bus or we don't, we go to Los Angeles or we don't, we say something, we pick up the phone. And of course those things change the core. You know what I mean? Like you just said, your sister happened to watch a documentary and then this happened, but also it's like realizing that like, this is what happened in this universe and in this life. And that what we, we 99% of the time in life, even if we're doing something that is, you know, whatever we're jet, we're doing what we could do in the moment, you know, we're doing what we could do with the utility we had in the moment. And, you know, th- that is why guilt is a normal and a, a, a feeling that I think a lot of people experience, but it's also just not useful because, you know what I mean? Like we just do what we can. We do the we best have, we can. We have yeah. these like little milliseconds to make decisions. You know, like Choices. I had a, a friend Choices. in high school who was struck by a lacrosse ball in the chest. He was a goalie at the one fraction of a second that something like that could possibly happen. And, you know, you think about things like that and you're like, God, if like, you know, as the parent, like if I had just made him breakfast that morning, if I had hugged him for one more, you know, like all these things I could have, I could have, I could have, but like, we just don't have control. 
We don't well, have I, control exactly, in the moment exactly. about the decisions we're making. We just do the best we possibly can. Well, and that's it hard was, to accept. It was actually a conversation I had with a, with a uh, recovered heroin addict that I have met um, who said to me, I told her that same story about the, that I felt that the guilt kind of goes back to me leaving her alone in the city. And she said something to me that blew my mind. She said, oh yeah, she was probably so glad you were finally gone and she could mm. do whatever she wanted. Interesting. All of a sudden I was like, boom, like, oh my God, like, yes, that was her personality. I mean, she right. did want to do whatever she wanted to do. Like, yes, maybe my being there was this kind of protective sheath against her true nature, but what was I going to do? Stay there forever? You no, know what I exactly. mean? Which you means you would have had to watch her 24 hours a day. Right. You, know, you can't right. keep someone on shore. You can't, you can't, you can't keep someone on shore if they're trying to go run sure. into the ocean. You have well, to both want to We're not in charge of anybody shore. else. We're only in charge right. of ourselves. Yeah. But right. I have a thought for you, Sheila. You know, this has come through working with bereaved parents for many years. And um, I've come to understand that it's really the powerlessness that is the most horrible feeling of all. And you've described that all through your discussion today, but it, because we can't blame anyone for that powerlessness, we end up turning it inward at ourselves. So I think guilt really is powerlessness because like Zara said, we do our best in life. You were such a good sister and continue to be the way you speak of her. You're still a wonderful sister to her, yeah. but you couldn't, as we said, watch her every second. There was no way. Yeah. You know, I've known families where they have watched somebody. They thought they were watching every second their child. And then just when they just when they looked away, that's when it happened. Because I think the person with an addiction or if they're suicidal, they're pushing you away. They mm -hmm. just like you're the person that you met said she wanted you to go. They really push you away, too. You know, because it's so yeah. hard for them. Yeah, I think it's it's so it's so clear to me now that you know, in this conversation, like you said, we barely got up to the point where she passed away because honestly, it's that, it's that, how did this happen that I'm living in really? It's yeah. my grief process hasn't gotten to the point yet of like, oh no, she's gone. Right. Yeah. I'm still it's stuck in how did this possibly happen? And just right. making sense of that because you know, her, her daughter was 16 when she passed mm, away yes, and it was yeah. so traumatic for all of us to, yeah. I mean, we, we all were there around her at her graduation when she graduated from high school. Mm. And that was just totally heartbreaking to yeah. be there and her mom not be there, yeah. you know, like just, it, it was every, every time we gather together, it's, it's so heartbreaking. I mean, we get together in the hole, the gaping hole where mm. Stephanie was such a big part of it. Well, you know, you're describing like, traumatic grief. You know, that's really what you're saying. And you're saying that the trauma is so overwhelming that it's hard to get to the grief part. So yes. often, you know, as a grief therapist, we have to work with trauma separately from grief because it's a whole different element. It does something different to your nervous system where grief yes. is this natural organic process. Sometimes trauma needs special intervention, you know? Yeah. And that's kind of like, I feel like I've been in the trauma part of it for like mm -hmm. most of the time. <laughs> yeah. Well, your brain is trying to make sense of something that is senseless, exactly. you know? And like, it's, 
I don't know. It never ceases to really amaze me or I think probably anyone else who ever touches base with these feelings, how fucking unfair life is sometimes. It just is. It's like so shitty and bitter sometimes. And like, it is very hard to make sense of it, you know? And it's also really wonderful and lovely. And the fact that those two things exist at a parallel is very confusing. (laughs) You know what I mean? And uh, so it is reasonable to be you know, needing to take your time sussing out your feelings surrounding it and getting past the just like, but why, you know what I mean? The like, but why-ness of it, it's hard. And we have to kind of like protect ourselves a little bit and protect our hearts and our brains because otherwise we can't really keep putting one foot in front of the other. So I think sometimes these coping mechanisms of like having a hard time working through your trauma and your grief, it's just because you're a human being, you know what I mean? And you certainly have the desire and the question and the inquisitive nature to want to get to the bottom of it. And like, you know, sometimes people say to me, or I even think to myself, like, God, when will this end? Right? Like I lost someone. I had a heartbreak. I got a divorce. I, somebody died that I care about. Like, I can't wait to be at the end of it. You know, we talk sometimes on the show about a light at the end of the tunnel. And it's just like, I think the thing about grief is realizing that it's like it, your life exists partially in a tunnel now and you, and it's not ever going to necessarily get better, but it's like, it's a companion that you have. It's a new relationship that you have throughout your life. And you have to kind of suss out a way to, to live with it and work with it. And it keeps changing. I mean, you know, my dad has been dead for like almost four years now. And just earlier today, like I play, like I have this one voicemail of his that like I play sometimes when I feel sad and like I played it today for no reason really, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm, I talk about my dad's death all the time and I'm okay with it, but like, and I probably will play it in 20 years from now. I hope that I still have it. Uh, you know what I mean? And I, I just think that's how it kind of goes. Well, we, sometimes. we live with grief. We really yeah. do. And I think, um, you know, something you wrote in your uh, pre-interview um, had to do with a pie. And I thought that yeah. was such a beautiful, beautiful image. Um, can you tell us more about that? Yeah. Um, Stephanie, on the night that she died, she was out. Um, and a really good friend of ours was at the club where she was at. She was out dancing to music. And one of the years on the anniversary of her passing, I called that friend because I was finally ready to like hear the story of the the last night that she was mm. alive. And she was there dancing, you know, enjoying the music, experiencing all that life had to offer, like a really light, shining light. Um, And she went home from that and she baked a chocolate cream pie Mm. um, because that was our chocolate pudding pie. Mm. That was something my dad would make for us as kids where you just take a graham cracker crust and you fill it with chocolate pudding and then you have to let it cool. So she put it out on her front porch to let it cool. And then, you know, when she went into her bedroom and she, uh, you know, engaged in her activities there, she passed away mm-hmm. and the pie was left cooling. Mm-hmm. And it's like a signal to me that, you know, that was her favorite pie. She loved chocolate pudding pie. When mm-hmm. my dad had showed up at the Thanksgiving prior, he had made pumpkin pie instead of chocolate pudding pie. And she was <laughs> mad. She's like, where's my chocolate pudding pie? Right. So he had to make her one the next day because she was adamant. <laughs> So she made herself that pie. So it's clear, you know, that she wanted to live. Mm-hmm. She wanted that pie. And she the, poison, was planning. the poison got her. The poison, the poison she was taking got her. Got mm-hmm. her. 
yeah. before the pie did. Yeah. Um, but you also said that you made, you finally made the pie. I did. Like four years did. later. And I thought that that was a really a good symbol of how we live with grief. Because I imagine that when you made the pie, and you can tell us more about that, but that it, it brought you both a sadness and a bitterness and an amazing sweetness, right? It just, there was something about it that you could really think of her. So tell us more. When did you make the pie? I made the pie for my daughter's birthday in January. Um, I think... I think I did it. I did it because we had already had a party. We had gone out and like had cupcakes and I hadn't prepared to, to have anything in the house. Um, but over the years, since my sister passed, I have compulsively bought all the things to make chocolate pudding pie and just left them in the cupboard. Right. So I had a, I had a a graham cracker crust. I had Mm -hmm. the pudding. But yeah. I just was like, you know, I would look at it and I just was like, no way, I can't deal with that right yeah. now. I can't make that pie. And so um, uh, my daughter's grandparents were in town and it was a birthday celebration and I had nothing. I had no cake mix. Sure. I had nothing. And I was like, oh, I know. I'll just make the chocolate pudding pie. So I didn't make it specifically like I would love to honor my sister's memory yeah, right. of this pie. It was because I had the stuff in the house. Mm-hmm. So I got out the crust. I got out the pie and just, of course, like, you know, in the moment of making the pie, I just became so emotional and it was, you know, eating it, sharing it. I made homemade whipped cream to put on top of it. You know, the, you know what I mean? Like I got whipped cream, I whipped the cream and Mm -hmm. I layered the cream on top and it's just this perfect pie. It's just delicious pudding with the crust is so yummy Mm. and the delicious cream on top. And I was serving it up and everybody loved it. I mean, Gaga, that's what we call grandpa. He was said, Oh, I love this pie. This is delicious. And, <laughs> and I, and I told everyone, well, this was Stephanie's favorite pie. So aunt, aunt Desi, TT Desi is here with us. So to Sheila, celebrate. You are healing. You are healing. You really yeah. are. And some, I think it comes around like that too. It's not these moments that we like need to like necessarily fixate on. I have to get through some day, some one day you just are ready to make pie, yeah. you know? Yes. Yeah, definitely. Sheila, this was really such an incredible episode and you're an incredible person and like your generosity of spirit to share your story and talk about something that's so, you know, still that you're processing is just so kind of you. And we really deeply appreciate it. And, you know, I want to ask you the classic processing questions, which is, you know, if you had a bit of advice for yourself as your younger self kind of beginning on this journey, um, in your grieving process, do you have any advice for that person at that time? In a way, you know, the only advice I could see giving myself when the news came in is just to to tell, to, to remind myself that I don't have to save everybody else's from their hurt. I think that, you know, instantly rocketing myself into the caretaker mode and, and, you know, talking to my dad and saying, dad, we all saw this coming, you know, this shouldn't be such a big shock. And, you know, being there for my mom and organizing the celebration. And I just went into this mode of just producing the event of like, okay, she died. Now, what are we going to do next? And, you know, I never, I just never allowed that raw energy of pain to, to happen for myself. And 
it's been very disorienting for me to like want want to be able to connect with that sensation and not knowing how to access it. Um, and so, I mean, I don't even know if it's possible for me to have gone through it any other way, right? It's that coping mechanism we talked about. Of course, yeah. Right, which is a strength and a weakness. And and it it kept you from attending to yourself. Yes. And that's what you're learning to do now. Yes. And, but it, it was, it was like, if I could just tell myself, you know, just pause, just feel, just be, be there for you and don't yeah. worry about everybody else. I wish I had had that, you know, voice on my shoulder. Yeah. Um, and I didn't, you know, I didn't at all. And it was very, um, it was just hard. And I think part of it, and I didn't mention this yet, but I was 10 weeks pregnant at the time of my sister's mm-hmm. passing. And mm-hmm. When you're pregnant, you're already in a very heightened state of protection. And so if I had to be honest, I really believe that I could not even allow myself in to that space because I needed all the energy I had to like grow a human. Yeah. And, um, you know, when, when I was, when I was pregnant the first time, I, I couldn't even watch a scary movie. I couldn't watch cop shows. Like I couldn't watch anything that had anything difficult at all. So when my own life became difficult, I think shutting down from the difficulty was really just about like, but, but my biggest problem is once I shut down my emotional truth, I, I just fell into, you know, postpartum depression, depression, just when you shut everything off, all of a sudden, like you're so far from your life that it's hard to crawl your, crawl your way back. And so it's taken me a long time to kind of shed that, that like to break through the wall I put up. Sure. Yeah. I was about to say, I call it turtle medicine because the turtle is a wise um, being because it protects itself when it needs to, but when it can, and when it's ready, it sticks its neck out. And so it's more, it's not just being in a rock or being in a, in a completely protect, you have that ability to stick your neck out when you can. Yeah. So turtle power to you. Turtle power. We also like to ask folks if we were all going to, since now we have shared this special time together. Um, and you know, unfortunately we can't actually physically all be together, but if we're going to have a meal, together at the end of this episode, what would we all want to bring? Well, I definitely would bring pastelitos, which is like the Puerto Rican empanada, Mm -hmm. um, because that was a specialty that my sister would make. And so I would probably make them badly and they (laughs) wouldn't be as good as hers. But, you know, it's just like the little fried pockets where you put like meat and um it's all about the cilantro and garlic and the like sofrito spanish spices with the meat in the pockets and then deep frying them um because that was something my sister was just like totally you know she was like known for her pastelitos so i'd bring Uh, those as like an appetizer and the the chocolate pudding pie awesome that sounds delicious i think that i would bring pernil the roast pork pernil pernil Yes. Pernil. I'm a chronic mispronouncer. I got it from Bobby. It's hereditary. <laughs> Pernil. Um, I would bring delicious Puerto Rican roast pork. That would be my contribution in, in to go with your delicious starter. Okay. And I'm going to bring tofu in honor of your father. Oh, 
Um, oh, what an I interesting saw, meal I we're going to have. a great recipe. I would like to have homemade tofu, and I'm very curious to hear oh, about fabulous. that at some point. But I saw a recipe recently for um, tofu with a balsamic, really aged balsamic glaze, tofu mm. and uh, zucchini ribbons. So I oh, would yeah. make that. Yeah, that sounds, sounds delicious. <laughs> How fun. Guys, we're going to have a great meal. Um, Sheila, this was really amazing. I can't thank you enough. And uh, I just want to give a quick shout out to some things that you had mentioned. I want to tell people where to find you. Uh, your music is incredible and everyone should hear it. So you're at uh, Sheila, uh, S-H-E-I-L-A-D-E-E music.com uh, and Facebook at Sheila D Music. Yes. And my album um, is called Has to Be Real. And it was released everywhere. So it's on Spotify, Apple Music, anywhere, YouTube. If you type in Sheila D has to be real, you can start jamming out ASAP. Yeah, I, I really, you're great. And um, I'm definitely going to put on your album after this episode to kind of channel exactly. you a and little dance. bit more. Because, yeah, yes, and dancing. Bit. Sheila, thank you so much for joining us. You're, this has been great. And uh, yeah, we really can't thank you enough. Well, I'm the one who wants to thank you because for me, I think wanting to do this and wanting to come forward and just speak is really a part of like actually processing my grief. (laughs) You know, I think some people talk about like how they processed their grief. And I feel like I came here to be like, ah, I need to process (laughs) my grief. (laughs) Well, it's been a, it's, it's a real honor that you would trust us enough and feel comfortable to uh, come do something that's so intimate with us and you would trust you know, us. And, and also it's such a gift to the people who tune in because like, as I said before, like this can feel like such an alienating experience and people feel like, God, I'm grieving wrong. I'm sad. I'm, I'm guilty. You know, all these feelings that feel so strange because we don't really have a really open conversation, um, culturally about this. So what you're doing in like being open about your processing is really just such a generous gift to everyone else who's listening. And I'd like to add one more thing, having worked for many years with families that have um, loved ones who suffer with addiction and have died from addiction, I feel that your honesty and the way you described it um, will really help them, you know, just feel more regular, that this is just a terrible problem that happened to regular good people, you know, just a really terrible problem. Yeah. So thank you so much. Hopefully take some of the shame element out of it, you know what I mean? Because people are just people and we, every single person has something uh, about them or in their life or in their family that, you know, isn't perfect. And like, we don't need to be ashamed about the things that make us imperfect. And I think the more we can embrace those and be like, yeah, this is part of my story, then, you know, we can all feel a little bit less shame and shame is again, a bag that we don't need to carry around. So, thank, thank you, you ladies. Sheila. Thank this you. Is a, this is a wonderful resource, this this podcast. Um, I have been listening to it since we met, and it has really helped me a lot. So oh. I'm not only a, a listener, I'm a listener and now a, a sharer, but I'm, I'm oh, here so because nice. I really needed this space in my life. And so I'm very grateful that you two are doing this. Thumbs up. Thanks for joining our family. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk to you soon. The Big Food Question is partnering with TD Bank on five special episodes about the resilience of small businesses in the face of a constantly shifting pandemic landscape. 
we cover avenues for accessing grants, loans, and financial services through federal and local government programs, as well as via nonprofits. We examine the benefits worker cooperatives present to workers, communities, and our food system, and share resources to learn more about operating under this model. We're talking to business owners who started pop-ups and became permanent during the pandemic to see what we can learn. Don't miss these episodes. Subscribe to The Big Food Question wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to TD Bank for supporting this programming. Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that Processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.